We're going to talk about a, a topic you may not have thought of in medical missions. It's really the topic that if God has called you and you end up on the field following that call, will probably have more to do with your success than anything else. Everybody that I talk to in healthcare that's planning on the mission field are so concerned about all the weird tropical diseases they're going to see that they've never seen before, and how in the world am I going to handle that? That's not the problem. No matter what your profession is, you have learned how to learn. Uh, they've hammered that into you. And sure, you don't know every disease you'll see on the field. I worked in Kenya for 11 years, and three weeks before I left, I saw a disease I'd never seen before. That's just going to be a lifetime of learning in that area. But the things that are going to make you successful in changing a community, in evangelism, in fruitful medical ministry that's going to reach out to a large number of people, is your ability to do all the other things besides medicine. The fact you can do a good C-section if you're a doctor or you can great, do great physical therapy or you're a nurse that uh, diagnoses and treats as a, as a nurse practitioner or maybe just as a nurse when you're overseas, those are going to be important things but not really the most important thing. The most important thing is going to be your ability to set up systems, to manage people, to solve problems, to run an institution, to set up an evangelism program, to raise programs, to, to raise funds, to manage projects. All those things are what really make a difference for a group of people. I just finished yesterday writing the foreword for Dan Fountain. Some of you know Dan Fountain, a pioneer missionary in the Congo. And it's the story of Vanga Hospital. And it will be coming out. Dan just passed away this past year. A tremendous leader. And as you read that book, you see this very clearly. Uh, Dan could have gone there and seen patients every day, 16 hours a day, for the many years that he served. And when he left, nothing would have changed. People would still be getting sick. Somebody still needed to do surgery. But instead, he took his leadership abilities and set up a system of health clinics. He set up a community health program. He started training institutions. He transformed a whole 250,000 people population and 2,500 square miles in the Congo. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and that's why I wrote this book. Because as I got there as a new missionary, I was scared just like some of you are, and some of you are already there. You know these things that I'm saying, and you want to get better at them because you've learned the lesson that it's the other things that are going to help you be successful. So we're just going to hit two or three topics today. There's no way this is the cliff notes on management, administration, motivating people, community health, you name it, uh, is in here. How to raise funds, how to set up spiritual ministry, and obviously we can't cover all that today. So we're going to hit some of the key areas and really get you hopefully understanding the importance of this. And whether you end up working in this country or overseas, these lessons will help you. Now, this presentation I'm giving is much longer than what you're going to see today. If you go to medicalmissions.org and look up this lecture, you can get the 25 or 30 slides you're not going to see today because of time. But we're going to dig into some important areas. And I want to start with one that's extremely important, and that's communication. And nowhere is it more important on the mission field. You like that? I thought that was – I've almost experienced that a couple times. Um, that, that is – something that is intensified cross-culturally. 
How do you communicate well? And you get into another culture, you're just learning the language, you don't understand the customs, you don't understand the history, the background, or even after you've done that for a while, this is going to be very important. So let's talk about some communication techniques that we talk about in the book. First of all is look for a response in communication, especially when you're working cross-culturally. Going down a one-way street the wrong way is bedlam, and it's the same in one-way communication. That's what I'm doing today. We're going to have some time for questions and answers because I'm doing the worst form of communication right now is standing up and talking to you in a lecture format. Uh, communication is a two-way street, and you want to evoke a response to let make sure that what you have said has been heard, has been understood, has been accepted, and people will act on it in a timely manner. You have to know the right methods of communication. Not every method works in every situation. Whoops, we'll try not to back up here. Uh, Not every form of communication works in every situation. Let me give you an example. If if you're going to fire someone, probably the best way to do it is not to send them an email, right? That's not very good communication. Or you're dealing with an issue or a problem. Uh, There's different sorts of things that you're going to put on the PA system in your institution. There's some that you'll do by memo. There's some you'll do by email. Some you'll need to do in person. And knowing which method will work uh, makes a huge difference. And you always want to give bad news in person. Uh, The other thing about the right method is that you've got to make sure that you don't avoid conflict in your communication because there's going to be those situations And if we avoid them, especially as we manage people, it will come back and bite you. Problems never get better. They always get worse if they're not addressed. So using the right methods, using the appropriate person to deliver the message. Are you an Apple fiend like I am? Yeah. I had my first Mac in 1985, so I was back in the beginning. But who always delivered the Mac news? Right. The right person did. The founder of the organization And so you want to use the appropriate person to deliver the message. How would you feel if you had a cancer diagnosis and you go in and and instead of the doctor talking to you, the nurse calls you on the phone? By the way, sorry to tell you about this, but you've got breast cancer. See you next week. Now, that wouldn't be the right time nor the right person to do it. And you need to especially make sure you don't ignore the person right before low the, above the problem level. In other words, you get the direct supervisor involved with you as you do these things. You want to build bridges through your communication. Be empathetic with your, with your listeners. Uh, the bridge from where you are to where you want them to go. I do a lot of public policy. Some of you know that. A lot of media, television, radio, and that type of thing. And you're talking to people that don't agree with you on abortion or physician-assisted suicide or whatever the bioethical issue is. And most of the time, people have pretty fixed opinions about that. So how do you go about that? You begin where they already agree with you and take them to where they don't agree with you. And the same is in true in communication of, of any sort. I might say something, I was talking about physician-assisted suicide, I'd say, you know, just like you, I want to take care of the sick and dying. We need to make sure that they have compassionate care at the end of life. Now, you may disagree with me on what that is, but let's talk about the options. So I have begun where they already agree and begin to take them to where they want to go. Um, And uh, I remember when I was at Tenwick, we had a big problem with cleanliness in the hospital, people uh, patients had no concept of what that was. 
And so we had to have a whole class when people came in the hospital on how to use the bathroom. Because most people, when we first got there, used the bushes. And so you'd find fecal material on the floor, in the hallways, around a blind corner, somebody to squat. And so how do you deal with that? And how do you do that cross-culture? And I remember when we began teaching it in the method of what do you do before people come over to your house when you invite them to guests? When they come over to your shamba, what do you do before they come? Well, we clean it up. We make it look nice so when visitors come, they'll be well welcomed. Well, the, ho- the hospital is like your home, and we need to keep it clean. So starting where they were, taking them to where we needed to take them in the hospital began to change the fact that we were cleaning up all the time, things we'd rather not be cleaning up. Uh, that's the idea of building bridges. And often in cross-cultural situations, stories, analogies, and examples are the best way uh, to do that. I remember when we were trying to teach in community health, we had the highest population growth rate of any country in the world in Kenya when I first arrived, 4%. And so we started to, to the idea of we were going to do uh, a family planning program. Well, in Africa, the more children a woman has, the more respect she has. So how do you teach family planning in Africa, right? I mean, in fact, in the culture we were in, if you had seven children, the woman's name, she began to be called a Jebuset, which meant literally, you old woman. But it was a term of great respect because she had birthed all these warriors for the tribe, right? So how do you do family planning? So we went and talked and tried to get a story, an analogy, to find that bridge to where they were. And finally we found out that the, when they had a lot of polygamy, when a woman had a child, her husband didn't come back and sleep with her in the hut until that child got to the middle of her thigh. So we started asking questions and saying, well, were the children healthier back then when you didn't have them so close together, the same woman? Well, yes, we think there were. Well, what if there was some way that we could make it so you only have one wife now, and that's a good thing, but you would not have another child until the one that was born got to the middle of your thigh? Well, that would be a good thing. And so starting, instead of talking about limiting the size of the family, we talked about spacing the children for health. Ended up having the same result. But we started where they were and took them where they needed to go. And part of that was listening. See, too often we've got all the answers and we come in and we don't take the time to listen to the staff in our dispensary, our hospital, our community health program, or whatever it may be. Uh, You need to listen clarify, and learn from those, and then you'll, you'll know exactly how to, uh, to communicate. And this is especially important if you're dealing with disciplinary actions. It's easy to get angry and speak before you should, and you'll regret it. I've, I'll testify to that. I remember after our, our uh, second term, I'd been in charge of the hospital uh, most of the four years before that, we built a hydroelectric project. Uh, it started a community development program. We built a nursing school. We built new buildings. I mean, I was literally working every minute, every day, except on Sunday morning to go to church. I had to deal with that problem, too. But about, oh, I don't know, a month after we got back, I got a note from our field director. Dave, I was down at Tenwick and just kind of doing the annual thing I do with the missionaries down there. And uh, just some things I thought I needed to say to you, you know, thank you for all you've done in leading the hospital. But some of the people there thought that perhaps you were more interested in getting the job done than you were in the people that you were supervising. I 
I was so ticked. He hadn't been taking night call every third or fourth night. He wasn't responsible for 400 staff. He wasn't, he hadn't accomplished all these things I had, and I was just ready to get out, you know, and type him a note. You ever had that happen? When those type of things happen in communication, the first thing you do is don't do anything. You take a couple days to think about it, pray about it, talk to someone else about it. And, you know, after I did that, I realized there was a lot of truth in what he was saying. Because I was so pushing to get all these many things done, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, we in medicine, you just, if, it's, if it's difficult, you just got to crack down and be hard, you know. So I was pushing people out of the way. If you weren't here to help me, get out of my way so I can get my job done. All right? I was so glad that I listened before I spoke. Effective techniques, and there's a lot of them, and you need to use the ones that will help, but we already touched on those, especially in other cultures. It's examples, it's stories, it's object lessons, it's slogans, it's sound bites, it's analogies. It's the things that will communicate well to adults. We learn the least by lecture. We learn the best by example. I learned that as I preached. Read what Christ did. What did Christ do in the four Gospels? He told a story and shared a principle. He shared a principle. He told a story. Or he made an analogy. Or he used an object lesson. That's how he taught. That's how he grabbed people's attention. And you'll find that's true, especially on the mission field when you're working cross-culture. Keep a positive attitude in your communication. Attitude carries enormous weight. Pick words and tones very carefully. And even if you're delivering bad news, negative news can still be delivered in a positive tone. I remember at uh, CMDA about seven or eight years ago, we were having some financial issues, and we decided to downsize our staff by about 20%. That wasn't easy to do because my staff is family. And I remember the day I stood up to talk to them. And good communication, I'm probably not going to get in. I don't know later we'll have time to get into some of the things with how to deal with the uh, gossip uh, tree that goes on in every organization. But got up and gave that in a positive tone of what this was going to do for the organization, that we were going to take care of these people, that we were going to have to let go. We weren't going to let them go because they were doing a bad job. They might be someplace where we had a little bit of redundancy. We were going to help them find another position. We were going to give them severance. And when we got done, everybody could know that we were strong and able to go forward as we had right-sized. Did it in a very positive tone, and it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Afterwards, people came up to me and said, thank you. I just had told them that one out of five person was going to get laid off from the office, and they were saying thank you because they knew it had been well-considered, it had been well-communicated, and that shows that the communication had worked well. Being consistent, consistent. If you have kids, you know all about this, right? <laughs> it's, it's consistent communication between mom and dad both. It's the same message. It's the same message repeated uh, exa- exactly the same way. In CMDA, uh, we actually have a kind of a co-CEO relationship with my uh, Dr. Gene Rudd as my executive vice president. And when we started that many years ago, which enables us to get a lot more done, we realized very quickly it was like mom and dad. You know, if Dave says no, I'll go ask Gene. If Gene says no, I'll go ask mom. And we learned that we had to be consistent in our communication. And that's true in any organization, and it's all levels. And if you're the head communicator, it's extremely important. If not, you're going to cause division. Trust is enormously important because without trust, no matter what you say, it's not going to make a difference. And trust is not easy to gain, and it's very easy to lose. 
Uh, one of the main reasons communication is not accepted is people don't believe you. Just look at what happens in our news every day, right? There's people saying all sorts of messages. Some you believe and some you don't because you don't trust ever either bringing the communication or the person that they're talking about you don't trust. So one of the little practical things that I've learned, too, and when you're dealing with issues like this, is be careful what you put in writing because writing comes back to haunt you. And what you mean to say may not be interpreted as they said it. And when you're dealing with difficult situations in particular or someone that's very antagonistic, what you put on paper can come back to haunt you, can be interpreted in a different way and make you look like it's someone that you can't trust. And that can be a real uh, problem. Let's talk about meetings. I hate them. Meetings are necessary in an organization. And whatever you do, whether you practice in this country and are in an employee or head of a, a practice or in a physical therapy group or working for a nursing organization, they're a necessary evil. And how do you get the most out of them? Why do I say they're a necessary evil? Because you end up going often with a meeting to the lowest common denominator. Let's get a committee together and everybody agree, and then we'll decide how to move forward. And you end up going to the lowest common denominator. They take an enormous amount of time. If I got seven of you together and we're going to have a meeting for our, we have essentially taken one person's whole day, work day, for a meeting. Uh, they are very expensive in that way. And so knowing how to move people forward and when you should have meetings and what you should do in them is very important. How do you run a good meeting? Well, we'll go back to the first thing. First, be the terminator. Terminate every meeting that you can, right? Because uh, they are, that should be only for the most valuable things. I'll tell you how we do them at CMDA. We have a senior staff meeting once a month. Now, we could sit there and go around the table, and everybody could talk about what happened in their area they're responsible for that month. What a waste of time, right? Because we don't have to get together to do that. So what we do at CMDA is every month there's a one-pager with three Ps in it. What is my progress, what are my problems, and what are my plans? And that goes to every senior staff in the organization before the meeting. So when we get together in the meeting, we do only what we can do together. We may be digging into a problem and discussing it. We may be brainstorming. But we're doing things that we can only do together, not things that we can do separately and pass off uh, to each other. Uh, did you know that stand-up meetings are a third shorter than sit-down meetings? I call stand-up meetings all the time. Let's get together in my office. We're not going to sit down. We're going to get to this point. Uh, they're more pleasant. They're more effective than sit-down meetings. That's not my estimation. There's actually good studies to show that. So you want to always examine the meetings. Are they needed? What are they accomplishing? Or are those can you terminate and accomplish your goals in other ways? One of the things we do at meetings is challenge our staff. You know one of the things I challenge them with? What should you be putting out of your misery? Because meetings aren't just to get together to do more. Meetings also should be making, helping to make decisions on what we shouldn't be doing. That's not worth doing anymore. And things have phases. They may be a great idea 10 years ago, and they're not anymore. So being the terminator and realizing you really have to analyze these things well. Involve as few people as possible. Is every person around that table really needed? Uh, is there someone to be just fine if they left out? Who's here and not actually contributing, just sitting there? Um, and surveying participants, one of the things that I learned to do when I was in Africa, and I still do it with our CMDA board meeting, is at the end of our meeting we assess how well the meeting went and how we could make it better. What do we do well? What should we do better? I remember a few years ago when I, one of our board members saying, you know, we're not praying enough. We have a prayer at the beginning. 
but we make a lot of decisions before we finish and have a finishing prayer. How can we incorporate more prayer into our decision-making for this organization? And so we began to do that, and it came out of our assessment. Uh, how can we be more efficient? Who needs to be there? Those questions are important uh, to be asking. Keep it brief. Start on time whether people are there or not. You notice today I wasn't worried whether people are here or not. They'll get here when they get here, and that's true with your meetings, and people get the message very quick. If you're the leader that this is going to start on time, they better be there. Uh, keep the meeting on track with timed agendas. We'll have a meeting and say we're going to take 10 minutes to discuss this, 5 minutes to discuss this, 15 minutes to discuss this. Set a time limit. There's good studies to show if a meeting lasts longer than an hour, you don't get much done. And so if it's going to take more than an hour, we'll have another meeting. But we're going to try to get it all done in an hour and uh, then critique the meeting. Keep your focus. What is important? What do we really need to be discussing? What do we need to dig into? And you may not have all the ideas, so you want to have other people to give an opportunity to say, this is what we consider to be important for us to be discussing. You want to recap discussions if you're leading a meeting or even if you're participating. How can we summarize what we've come to? How can we say in a sentence or two what, what the decision is or how we're moving forward? Uh, you want to be asking questions continually, looking for clarification, you want to keep input concise. You ever been in a meeting when somebody just goes on and on and on? You know what a great way to handle that? If you could summarize what you want to say in one sentence, what would you say? And smile. But that's true. And especially as you get in these cross-cultural situations with people from different cultures, you may be working, if God calls you and you're overseas in a mission situation, where you may not only have the local people involved, you may have missionaries from other countries, you may have other tribal groups. It can be extremely complex when you're trying to get to decisions. And so keeping input concise, giving the opportunity for people to ask questions is important. Use visual aids if they're available to help people understand where you're trying to go. Make decisions. The worst thing is to have a meeting and you don't make any decisions. You never get anywhere with it, and you've just spun your wheels. If you've lived in Africa, you know what spinning your wheels is. You've been down in the mud uh, spinning your wheels. You're not going anywhere, just burning up the engine. And that happens in organizations as well, when people don't feel like you're making progress. Don't let one person dominate a meeting. If you're having a problem with someone, just pull them aside between meetings and say, listen, Bill, Mary, I appreciate your input, but we need to give other people an opportunity to get into these decision-making and this discussion. And uh, leave discussion time and brainstorming time in your meeting. Are you prepared for meetings? Are you prepared? The worst thing is to come in without an agenda uh, and all the other things that need to be decided giving background material to people so they can do reading. I was involved in a meeting about uh, last week on the board of a, of a university, and we were talking about threats to high, Christian higher education. And before we got there, we had a whole reading list of things that we needed to look at to understand this issue so we wouldn't be sitting there having education when we could be discussing about how we were going to move forward. So getting those things out, maybe materials, handouts, previous minutes, uh, pre-meeting discussions with important stakeholders. Get the info out there for, for what you need to do and uh, then finish well. At the end, if you're having minutes for your meeting or whatever, there should be a listing of all the assignments. Here's who's, who's supposed to do what by when should be at the end of that or people have it very clear at the end of meeting. Bill, you're going to take care of this by next Tuesday. Mary, you're going to do this by two weeks from today. 
And so you have a concrete plan, and people walk out of there knowing where you're heading and what needs to be accomplished. And those things make a real difference. I'm going to dig into another area. How do you create a great Christian workplace? And that's important wherever you're serving. How do you keep people focused and together and um, put a lot of thought into this? And we were extremely honored a few years ago. Um, the Christian Management Association, it was called back then, and uh, Christianity Today decided to decide the best Christian workplaces in the United States. And I, I didn't really think about it. The first thing we knew, they wanted to come visit us. I thought, that's odd. I hadn't even heard about this thing. And uh, here, some couple of our staff had heard about it and written something. And by the time the whole thing was over, CMDA was picked as the best Christian workplace in the United States. I was amazed and humbled because I, we were just working hard trying to do a good job, had no idea that someone would think that type of thing. And, and after that happened, people came and said, we want to see what you're doing. We want to see what you're doing. You know, and all of a sudden, you're having to explain why you're the best Christian workplace. I had to sit down and think. I mean, what, what are the key things that really have made a difference, most of them which I learned managing a hospital uh, in Africa. And uh, they were so ingrained in the things we did that we didn't consider them extraordinary. So that's some of the things uh, I want to share with you. And then how can you take these principles, the applications may be different, but the principles are the same, and use them in your institution, your community health program, your mobile clinics, your dispensary, your hospital, uh, your educational institution you're involved with overseas if God takes you there. How do you apply these? And uh, I'll think you'll find some things that will be helpful to you. How do you create a workplace where people are joyous? I think that's really the target. They're fulfilled. They're working hard. They're delighted to be doing what they're doing. They look forward to coming to work almost every day. I mean, all of us have days when we don't look forward to going to work. Um, and, And, you know, even in my organization, as I mentioned, I've had, you know, we've had our issues. I've had to fire people and solve interpersonal conflicts and calm, irate constituents. I was doing one of those yesterday. Somebody upset with me, a CMDA member. Deal with financial shortfalls, revamp governance structures, and all the other things you've got to do. Doing all that and still ending up with a place where you can work together. First of all, you have to have a very clear mission you can rally around. Everybody knows what you are about and are excited about it. If you don't know where you're going, it's going to be difficult to rally people to your cause. Uh, That means developing a clear purpose, a clear mission statement, vision statement, value statements, documents, and then everybody knowing that. If you came up to any CMDA staff member, they should be able to say to you, the mission of CMDA is to motivate, train, and equip Christian doctors to glorify God. What's our vision? Transform doctors, transforming the world. This is so ingrained in the people, and that's what leadership does, and that's what you're going to be responsible for. If it's just we're just trying to get all these patients seen today, and there's no greater cause, there's no greater purpose than just finishing today, you're not going to have a very satisfied staff. Why should I invest my life in this is the question you want to answer for them. Will it make a difference for the kingdom? is a question you want to answer them. You want everyone involved to see the organization's mission and feel it's so important that they are eager to get up in the morning to do it. And uh, that means it's not something that you write, put up on the shelf, and that's the end of it. It means it's something that you're hitting every day, every opportunity that you have. Um, 
and it's so important. When I came to Christian Medical and Dental Associations, our slogan, our soundbite was a fellowship of Christian doctors. How many people would die for that? For some good fellowship. And I realized very quickly that there was no, let's take this mountain type of, of uh, situation. And it's true in your hospital as well. I remember when I was put in charge at Tenwick, I was 34 years old. A founder had left, gone on furlough, ended up getting sick and was out most of the next four-year terms. I was very young to be doing something like this. And, and I realized that I had to give that greater vision. And I, I didn't have uh, half the knowledge I have today But I remember started talking to the staff about we're going to be the best mission facility with the most evangelism of any hospital in Africa. And I kept saying it, and we weren't. I mean, we were averaging 180% occupancy of the hospital. We had six trained nurses, three doctors. We were overwhelmed. We didn't have too many preventable diseases. We didn't have clean water. We didn't have 24-hour electricity. And we had problems coming out the kazoo. But I knew if I could get them to believe that we could be the best mission hospital in Africa, it would motivate them and turn them in the right direction. And if you know anything about Tinwick Hospital today, it could be arguably one of the best, if not the best, mission hospital in sub-Saharan Africa. And, And part of getting that mission across is to share stories with your staff on how you're being successful. Every month I write a report for our board uh, and our House of Representatives. And, you know, here's things that have happened. But you know what the things they really read? At the bottom of this page, in this block over here on this page, are stories of people's lives that have been transformed. Because our goal is to transform doctors, to transform the world, then we need to be showing how that is happening. And that's what they get excited about. Secondly, you need to be involved in adoption. I'm not talking about adoption, what you're thinking about. But when you hire staff, well, I tell people I don't hire staff. I adopt people into our family. It's that big a deal because we will not settle. We work very hard to get extraordinary staff because if we do that, guess what? My job gets really easy. Uh, We talk about A, B, C, D, and F employees. You know what those are? An A employee, an A staff member is somebody that's so good they can do the job better than you can. You just turn them loose. You're having to slow them down. They are moving so fast and getting there so quick that you realize you're going to burn out your racehorse. B employees, they require more supervision. They're generating some problems you have to solve. They're coming for advice pretty often, uh, but they're still above average. Then the C employees. The C employees are not that good and they're not that bad. You kind of wish they were a little worse because you really would like to get rid of them, but they're not that bad. They just take all your time. They're, they're setting up problems all the time. There's conflicts going on. They're at the back of it. Uh, they, they, they don't follow instructions. They, you know, it's just, uh, but they work hard. Those are C employees. D employees are easy. You need to get rid of them. They're incompetent, and you know what to do with that. And then they're F employees. You know what F employees are? Those are the ones who want your job. They're going to go behind your back, and they're going to try to subvert everything you're doing. If you ever had an F employee, you'll never forget one of those. And so when you're out there looking for people to adopt into your staff, you want to be looking for the right kind of person. Uh, We want all these parts that you're putting together to blend together. Some of you do cooking. I do the cleanup for my wife, Jody. But I watch her put all the ingredients together, and it's this, that, and others. Some of them don't taste worth anything. But you put them together, and oh, my goodness, there's dessert, right? And it's the same as you create an atmosphere 
that's going to help you accomplish the mission that God has given to you. You want to put the right components, the right leadership, the right followers. Um, and, you know, uh, one thing, nice thing in, ten- in Tennessee, we don't have, we have a, what they call contractual relationship. But we don't write contracts in the sense of what you think of because I want people to be so called. In fact, we talk about the, the five C's that we're looking for in new staff. You know what those are? The first one is their, if I can remember this, four C's, is their character. Their character. I'm more, I can't teach character. Did you know that? Their mom and daddy taught them character when they were five or under five a long time ago, and they developed it further on as well. But it's very difficult to teach character, so that's, that's very, uh, very important. Uh, do they have a calling? I don't want to give a job. I want people that God has called to work in this ministry with me, whether they're a national staff halfway around the world or whether it's somebody in my organization now. Third, I want the right chemistry. Do they fit with everyone else? Is this somebody who's going to spoil the soup, the good thing we've got going? And so what is the chemistry? And the last thing I'm looking for is competency. You know why? Because I can teach competency. I can send someone to a course and get them smarter and better at their job. But I can't teach chemistry, and I can't teach character. And so when you look at those things, it helps you analyze how can we bring this person in and make them an integral part of what we're doing. You want to create a caring atmosphere in your organization, and that starts with you if you're in leadership, that you genuinely care about people. We have a a young man and a a middle-aged woman that uh, do our cleaning in the office, and our office is immaculate. Yeah, they do a wonderful job. But when they come in to get my trash every day, it's a time for me to link with them. They're, they're not direct reporters to me. They, they've got a couple levels before they get to me. But I want to create a caring atmosphere. So I want, I want to be there when they get family gets sick and they need somebody in the hospital. Or they need some medical advice. And, Dr. Stevens, what do you think about this? Or be concerned about what's happening with their kids. You want to cultivate genuine relationships. And as the organization gets bigger, that gets harder. But the word gets around if you're doing that with as many people as you can. And as you do it, guess what? It's taken up by others and they do the same thing. As a leader, you're setting an example. And uh, one, let me give you an example of a little practical thing we did uh, a year or so ago. And that is, I mean, every year in Christmas, we have an ornament exchange at Christmas. The men with the men, women with the women. And every whose ornament you get, you pick it out, that is your prayer partner for the year. And our staff often do special things for their prayer partner during the year, a special note, a gift, or whatever. Um, you know, having, you're overseas, how do you do this? I remember at Tenwick, we had... Uh, key staff over for meals in our home. We had Bible study in our home with some of our nursing staff. How can I create a care and atmosphere? I go visit them in their home. Are you having a difficult, you're, you're, you've got a child that's sick. I'm, I'm not on that ward, but I'm going to come visit because it's your child. How can you create that caring atmosphere of that we're family? Because that's what you're trying to do. How do you help them grow in Christ? You want to bind a staff together? Help them grow in Christ. Uh, now at CMDA, we have two chapels a week. When I was at Kenya, we had chapel every morning and, and the chapel and an outpatients and OB and, um, and uh, one other area. I can't remember where that was. And there was chapel going on all the time for the staff. You know the one thing that I should have done? I should have had chapel twice a week for the staff. We got together with them on Sunday. But an opportunity for us to come together as Christian brothers and sisters 
and grow together. And that's hard in a, in a big mission hospital. But if you're in a clinic or a dispensary or a community health group, how can you do that? Because as you grow in Christ together, it will draw you, as you draw close to him, draw you together. I have a plaque in my bedroom that was given to us by a dear friend after her husband, who was a resident with me and a good friend, uh, divorced her while she was delivering their baby, told her he was going to divorce her while he was delivering their baby, first baby, on the delivery table. Honey, I'm leaving. How's that for a nice guy? And that little plaque that she gave us says, marriage takes three. It's true. I've never taken it out of our bedroom. It's the same as true as you manage people in missions. It's only as you draw close to Christ that you're going to minimize a lot of the issues and problems that you have because you become more like him. Timelessness. One of the big problems, we touched on this before, is not dealing with problems and issues when they arise. And it's easy, oh man, this other missionary is causing this issue, and I don't know, maybe they'll just get over it. I'll just pray for them. You know, often it's going to take intervention. Your antennas need to be up and to snoop out interpersonal conflicts as you manage people. And if you do that and deal with the things early, it's much easier to deal with. You know how you know who the problem missionaries are on the mission field? It's the ones that have been transferred to every compound in the country. It's true. It's true. If you get there and everybody's, somebody's been everywhere, it's probably because they're not that good. It's not because they're that good. It's because that they have interpersonal conflicts. And somebody hasn't dealt with the situation. And uh, one of the responsibilities in creating that workplace is to deal with that. A transparency. Transparency. In other words, you can't tell everybody everything. But you want to be as transparent as you can if you're in a leader and responsible. Even if it's your department, you're in charge of surgery, you're one of the nurses. How can we let everybody clearly see what's going on, have input in making decisions, know that their opinions are important, uh, you know, where the organization is, is heading. They hear both the good and the bad, the difficult and the things that are going well. Uh, you know, and part of that is being open yourself, sharing your own spiritual struggles, uh, sharing your issues. Uh, don't hide your life from other people. The greatest impact you'll have as a missionary is through the personal relationships you have with the people that you work with. Those are the ones you'll affect the most. And you want to mentor and disciple them to be even more. And they're watching you all the time, whether it's other missionaries, whether it's national staff. And so it's very important to be transparent and real. Apologize when you make mistakes. Admit your bad decisions. As you do that, people will see you as genuine, not as somebody who is perfect. And uh, transparency and gives people a sense of ownership of the ministry, and they, they know what's going on. When we did our community, big community health program, we printed a newspaper every month. How do you communicate with, you know, now there's 1,500 of these community health helpers out there. So every month there was a newspaper, and in it there was always something about somebody they knew in their own community, and there was communication from the leaders of the organization of where we are, where we're going, what problems we're dealing with. When we got together, we did the same thing if we got together as a group. So those things are important, transparency. Make memories. Make memories. Memories are so important. It's not just working together. It's having fun together. And um, I'll let you in on a secret. We have a lot of fun where I work. And we make time for fun. Because if we don't, we are not bound together as an organization nearly as as you need to be. I'm always looking for an excuse to have fun together. A few years ago on Boss's Day, you remember the 9 to 5 movie? Some of you are not that old. 
We have the nine to five theme. The end of the day, my, I and my co-CEO, Gene Rudd, were kidnapped, tied up with phone cards, and blindfolded and taken off in a van. And then stopped by the police. They had arranged that as well. I mean, it, pictures were taken, videos were made, and, and it ended up down at the river. You know, the policeman was in on the whole thing at a big party and all that kind of stuff. Those type of things. I remember at a Christmas party, we played Hollywood Squares. You know how we did it? They picked nine of the staff. I didn't create this party. The staff did it. And they took uh, nine bags and handed them to nine different people, and you walked out and put on the costume and came in and took on that character in Hollywood Squares. I was Elvis in white sequins. We take pictures of things. We put them on the web in a staff-only part of the web. I'm not going to tell you where that is. We have parties where we invite the families in. It might be a rodeo. We, we had a 50s party. Remember when I turned 50 and Jean turned 50? They had a 50s party. And we all dressed up. My, my assistant was wearing roller skates and serving milkshakes. And the cakes were made like 45 records. I mean, just making memories together, being the brunt of the joke sometimes, being the one that's laughed at, builds relationships and commonality and, and really helps. And you can do that overseas. It may not be the same way. You may be getting a, uh, having a pig roast, not a pig roast, a goat roast in Africa. And uh, everybody's getting together and, and, uh, you know, and families are coming in. When we did community health, we used to have huge parties invite all our community health helpers and council members in and celebrate what God had done and tell stories of good things that had happened and give out gifts and feast together. And those type of things bound us together. Keep your organization flat as you can. Obviously, there's got to be some hierarchy. But the more levels you have, the more chance of miscommunication. And so you want to keep your organization, your dispensary, with as few levels as possible in supervision. If you're responsible for too many people, you can't meet with them individually. And my policy is a supervisor meets with every one of the staff they supervise once a week for at least a half an hour. And so you're keeping short accounts, you're dealing, you're mentoring, you're helping them reach their goals, you're facilitating and assisting them. Those things make an enormous difference, good supervision. That's one of the reasons our community health program was so successful. Our supervisors met with each volunteer health helper in the community three times a month. Once for a clinic, once when they met with the community health committee, and the third time uh, when they went and visited homes with them in the community. So we kept it flat in the ability for people to be there investing themselves in other people's lives. And if you keep it flat, it avoids a lot of problems, a lot of misconceptions, and uh, them versus us type of response because they feel like they're not that far away from people making decisions. Communicate consistently, and that's we've talked about. And that includes oiling the gears. Um, and how do you do that in an organization? We've talked kind of in a, in, in a system, but how do you do it in an organization? One is you have standing communications. You know what standing communications are? Those are all your policies. And policies are not there to tell people what they can do. They're there to tell people what they can't do. You can do anything you want except don't do this and don't do that. And here's the fences that our policies put around us. Now we have our goals. We have our budget. Now let's go in here and get the job done. And uh, then give people the, the ability to make decisions and strategies and get the job done. But they know, just like children need to know, here are the things that you don't do in our family. Uh, frequent formal communications with them. And it might be through, as I mentioned, newspapers or other forms of communication. And then uh, also have the ability to uh, meet with people individually. Martin Luther said that he prayed three times a day. He prayed for at least an hour a day. But if he had a lot of problems... He, he had to pray more, two hours. 
That's true in communication. Did you know that? The more problems they have, the more frequently you need to communicate. The more issues you're dealing with, the more outside threats, the more problem in the hospital, you need to intensify your communication and using every uh, opportunity you have to clearly communicate. We could talk about a lot of other things. We could talk about governance. We could talk about how to do spiritual ministry in a, a mission hospital, how to do community health. How, there's tons of topics. Uh, this book that I put together was written for missionaries on the field. It's actually a summation of articles I wrote over seven or eight years dealing with every issue from raising your kids to boarding school to all those type of things. Because these are the things, not the medical issues, they are going to help make you successful. And it's also the things that can drag you down. The most common reason that missionaries return from the field is not because they don't know how the medical work, how to do the medical work. It's because of interpersonal conflicts with other people, lack of mentoring, lack of opportunities, and feeling like they're part of a team that's really accomplishing something. And the organization is not functioning well, and they don't see how to get out of that. And so they get out of it by leaving. So these are important things to consider. Um, this book is available uh, over at CMBA's bookstore if you have an interest in it. It makes a great gift for a missionary, and it's a great opportunity for you to have on your shelf. I learned most of my lessons the hard way. And fortunately, I had a good mentor on the field, but a lot of things I learned because I made mistakes. And you'll make your mistakes as well. But learning from someone else and finding someone who can help you down this path is so important. What questions do we have or comments? We have a few minutes. I know I've worn you out. Yes, back there. Um, a voice of experience. Yeah. I was going to ask if, if you had any uh, struggles or insight on when you're building a team, you know, you have missionary folks, but you're also wanting them to integrate into your national, your, your host culture and right. trying to spend good team building time, but you don't want to sacrifice their bonding, you know, their, their time with their, your national culture. So, yeah, it's so important that you don't neglect one for the other. And the tendency is to go with where you're most comfortable, which is your other missionaries uh, that are serving alongside of you, and yet where the most importance is is with your national team. I think the key thing is trying not to see them as two groups but trying to see them as one group, which is difficult but because some of the ways you communicate and things are a lot easier with one group than the other. But it's important for them to feel part of the team. In other words, your missionary staff to feel part of the larger team, not a them, us. And, and one of the things, you know, is so important as you bond that team together is, is to have people see them as real uh, co-workers and not one group over the other, uh, which is often a problem, especially in situations where it's pioneer-type work and even in other situations. So it is hard, and it takes more work, and you've got more cultural issues, and you have people among your missionary staff that may not be as comfortable with it as you are, and you've got to bring them along at the same time, and uh, they're, not, they're not really relating as well as they should, or, and they're causing problems with your national staff. So it's very complex, and I don't think there's anything more complex than trying to manage a mission hospital. Would you agree? Yeah, I think the biggest mistakes I made were assuming the newcomers should have that desire to be in that community, but they, yeah. they were, and I set these goals and objectives and time limits, and they ended up uh, resenting me for that, and I, yeah. I just wondered if you could... Uh, it's, 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 
you've got to get buy-in and you've got to deal with individuals. I think the, you know, the biggest problem I had on the field, I think in retrospect, it was so busy I didn't have regular time with my key people. I just dealt with problems when they came up. And so I wasn't building. I was, I was trying to put together what was broken. And, um, and that ultimately doesn't solve the problem. You've got to be proactive. And that's the biggest challenge in doing this type of thing in a mission situation is all that medical work you've got to do. But if you don't, and oftentimes it takes an enormous effort to get over the hump from where you are to where you need to go. Uh, I, f- I found that out. Uh, very true because, you know, you've got all the medical stuff still to do. But this is the stuff that makes a difference in the long run. This is the stuff that builds an organization, builds a ministry that's going to change their catchment area. And you cannot reach very well out beyond your doors if you're not taking care of the stuff inside your doors. And, um, but it's, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Other questions or comments? It can be done, though. And I wanted no, I thought it was a hand going up here, and it was a purse going to his shoulder. Someone else? Yes. Right. You try to explain to them you have to do it this way, you have to do it this way, this way. And we spent about six months out of the year there, so most of the time we're here, and we're constantly communicating back and forth, but it's like we told them over and over, and it's hard to find people there that really would qualify for what you need because of the education. Right. Well, part of it may have to be that you have to educate and put them into formal things, but the key is accountability. It's the same as it is with raising children. If, if they don't think there's any consequences for not following what you're telling them to do, and that's difficult in a structure. You're going to have to have nationals involved with you in putting those systems together. But there is accountability. Here's what happens when we don't do what we're supposed to do. Here are the consequences. Here are the steps of what happened. If you came to my organization now, you'd have a meeting. You'd have another meeting, a letter would go in your file. You'd have probation. You'd have, and then you know where it's going. And, and even doing that overseas, and I've dealt with it. I worked in Kenya. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and finding the star performers and trying to replicate them. They're out there. They're ones that will get it quicker. And how can you get them to help you get the others there? There's some people who have to let go. They're just not going to perform, and that's true. Um, and that's challenging cross-culturally. That's why you need nationals involved with you. But if they think it's just going to be them saying that one more time, you're not going to get anywhere. There has to be consequences when things don't go well. I want to thank you all for coming. If you have any other questions, let me know. And uh, God bless you as you follow his call.